Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? D is for Diamond Dogs. One of my favourites, uh, just such a great, great record. Yeah. So recorded January, February 1974 at Olympic Studios and Ireland Studios in London and Ludolf Studios in the Netherlands. Yeah, so it's Bowie's eighth studio album, this, isn't it? It is, yeah. And a really interesting beast as well because of the backstory to it. But the first clue that a musical was on the way came in 1973 when he told a journalist that his next album would be a musical in one act called Tragic Moments. That's a terrible title. Yeah, it never came to fruition. Anyway, did it, and he'd also told others it would be called Revenge and the best haircut I'd ever had. I love this. So, I mean, he's obviously being playful as well, Mm. but do you know what is really, really kind of prescient for all of this? He's always talking about musicals, isn't he, Bowie? Yeah. Yeah. You know, from early on, he wanted to do musicals, and he was interested in Lionel Bart. And let's not forget what was his last act, Lazarus. Of course. So it's always been on his mind. It's almost like that was the aim, the main goal that he wanted to get towards. And you wonder, don't you? In the 60s, he's going through all these frustrations, as you say, inspired by Lionel Bart, Anthony Newley, that kind of thing. So he had this idea, probably unformed in his head, but he needed to do it at some point in his life. He did, yeah. And uh, he said the album would feature protest songs about how bad the food is in Harrods these days. So he's just being, like, playful and not taking anything too seriously. But uh, the album was fraught with hurdles. We'll get to that. October 1973, he records 1984 and the Dodo segue, which he performed at the 1980 Floor Show. And Dodo, such a great song, and just got left by the wayside really for a while uh, but that was the last recording session that he did with Ken Scott who then went off to work with Supertramp on Crime of the Century he did I, I saw that tour and I thought that was a great record they're much derided Supertramp everybody hates them I don't know that record I know it's a huge one well Dreamer you will know of the course song of I know Dreamer right okay yeah. well that's on it and, uh, and bloody well right and I saw him at the Free Trade Hall and I thought it was a great record mm. but you know jumping ship from Bowie to that they, yeah. they sold millions didn't they so it, yes. it worked for Ken Scott I suppose Definitely. okay so over the next few months, uh, Bowie spent some time working on the Astronets LP with Ava Cherry and Jeff McCormack, a.k.a. Warren Peace. By November 74, he'd met up with William Burroughs, hadn't he? And they discussed, amongst other things, the cut-up technique, which we discussed in C. Yeah. And he was going to use this, certainly, more than he'd done before on the next album, which, of course, became Diamond Dogs. It was shortly after he'd met Burroughs uh, that Bowie claimed to have written 20 new songs for what he called his Kitchen Sink Record, 1984. Mm. Now, famously, this is a real stumbling block, the hurdle I was talking about. George Orwell's widow, Sonia, she just bluntly refused permission to rework George Orwell's novel. 
She just absolutely wasn't having it. So that went out the window, much to his annoyance and, and, yeah. and chagrin. And uh, he described Sonia Orwell as the biggest upper-class snob I've ever met in my life. Mm. Though apparently... Allegedly, supposedly, he never actually got to meet her. Representatives were sent to meet her mm-hmm. and came back with the stories. And then Bowie, yeah, he just gilded it a little bit with the fact that he thought that she was horrible, but he hadn't met her. No, OK. Nevertheless, he wasn't put off by any of that. He used 1984 as a template for Hunger City, which was the central sort of location motif of Diamond Dogs, wasn't it? Which is Bowie's own vision of this post-apocalyptic future dystopian society echoing the themes in Orwell's novel. I mean, the thing is that he was obviously so mad that he just thought, right, I'm going to get around this. Mm. It can't be 1984. Fine. It's good, like, you know, the 1984 show and having a song called 1984. You can't copyright a year. So he was obviously so mad, so mad. But he was also in a little bit of a pickle because obviously at this point in time, he'd gotten rid of the spiders. Mm. And, you know, I mean, he relied so much for arrangements, as he's well documented, particularly on Mick Ronson. Yeah, sure. So he was there recording this album and he didn't have his mates with him. No, he didn't. So he decided at one point, he said, look, you know, I'm going to play everything myself, which you wouldn't put it past him and you you certainly had a go. And then, of course, he was practising guitar, supposedly a couple of hours a day. But, of course, eventually he makes some phone calls, gets his black book out, makes some phone calls, he gets Mike Garson in on piano. You wouldn't want anybody else by your side, would you? Mike Garson, Ainsley Dunbar on drums, Tony Newman also on drums, Herbie Flowers, who'd played on Space Oddity to begin with on bass, and Alan Parker, much underrated on guitar. Yeah, do you know, I call him the greatest living Englishman, but uh, Vic Goddard of mm. Subway Sect, he got to the point where he recognised Bowie's car and Bowie's driver. Right. And he was walking past a studio one day. It's obviously one of the studios we just mentioned, not sure which one. Mm. And he saw Bowie's car outside with the chauffeur. So he went up to him and he said, excuse me, is David in there? No, so no, no, son, no, no, not at all. He said, well, he is actually, isn't he? No, he's not, no. So he just waited, and around about four o'clock that day, David Bowie came out, oh. and Vic met him and got his autograph and all that, and he said, what have you been doing in there? He said, well, do you want to keep your eye out for a track called Rebel Rebel? He said, I've just been working on it now. I've been doing the drums all day. So, I mean, oh. he, was doing, he was doing drums on Rebel Rebel, whether that made it to the final mix or not, yeah. but a great little story. Oh, wonderful. So he started in December 1973. Keith Harwood was working on the album, who'd worked with the Stones and Led Zeppelin, loads of legendary bands, and also Tony Visconti brought That's right, yeah. yeah. A phone call was made to former Spider Trevor Boulder around this time, wasn't it? Who'd worked on what described as a nothing song that never really got recorded, uh, and they never worked together again. Boulder had said that David wouldn't even say goodbye to him on the day. He just sat there and he was a little bit uncomfortable, and then he was like, yeah, okay, see ya, and then, see ya. Bye, Dave, I'm off now. And uh, just oh. nothing at all. I mean, I, uh, who knows what that was about. But yeah, they were never to work again. Of course, he went off to Wishbone Ash for a short while yeah. with Trevor Boulder and obviously to Uriah Heep for an awful long yeah. time. And I went, I don't like Uriah Heep. I bought the first album because somebody recommended it and it's crackers. Mm. It re- and the music's good largely. Yeah. The lyrics are ridiculous. Uh, but he was in them for an awful long he time. Was. But I went to see Uriah Heep just to watch Trevor Boulder playing bass. Such a such a great fella he seems, you know. He's the only spider I never got to meet. Oh, uh, is that right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, so rumour has it also around this time. We know, we've kind of discussed this in C, that Bowie was starting to become a regular cocaine user, so it's part of his life, and it certainly feeds into Diamond Dogs, doesn't it? The creation of it. It does, rest. yeah. And also, at this point in time, maybe the two things are related, but the uh, main man relationship, it was getting a little bit frosty, mm. wasn't it? You know, so uh, they'd not been paying the studio fees, apparently, or the office fees. And so the pressure was on Bowie yeah. to come up with a record again. You look at various stages of Bowie's career, and you're thinking, like, when he's in Berlin, he was skinned. Hint. 
At this point in time, they're saying, come on, we need another record, Davey. Come on, off the back of pinups, which was massive, obviously, cover versions. Yeah. You know? But then you've also Aladdin saying, Ziggy Stardust, all of the previous albums. When Ziggy got big, the other albums started selling as well. So yeah. there must have been loads of money coming through and obviously loads of money going out. As I say, Bowie wasn't really seeing any of it, was he? No. When it came to the creative side of things, obviously been through Ziggy, Aladdin saying, so he needed a new character. So this is the way he introduces Halloween Jack, who is a figure in Diamond Dogs. That's right. And it's been described as Bowie's darkest album since The Man Who Sold the World, you know. And there were drug references in there. Yeah. I mean, there were drug references in previous Bowie things, but this kind of seemed to be more kind of first-hand rather mm. than documenting other people's lives, you know, like yeah. Billy Dolls and all that kind of Definitely. stuff. Mike Garson described it as macabre, mm. didn't he? And he was concerned for Bowie's health, so he starts to lose weight at this point, not looking great, a result of overwork, drug use, probably a lot of pressure, as you say, from main man as well, so he's feeling it at yeah. this time. And I mean, obviously, the Ziggy Tour took it out of him. The point that the Ziggy Tour finished, they were actually supposed to be going to certainly America, I think it might have been Japan as well, mm. uh, but Bowie was exhausted and just just didn't know what was going on with the money and uh, it was a very fractious time in his life and again pinups was a holding operation yeah it was uh, it's a great one it's it, by no means bowie's best album is it you know a load of cover versions as i say but bringing the money in and Certainly. it's just a weird thing but anyway it's always a bowie album that is my number one album but it does yeah. change mm. and quite often it is young americans it could be hunky dory it could be station to station it could be at times diamond dogs I love it. It's the same thing with me. Usually it's hunky-dory or low, but I've got a real soft spot for Diamond Dogs for many, many reasons. One of them being the opening track, Future Legend, which I... I I'm guessing the same with you. I used to know Off By Heart. And yeah. it still goes through my head every now and then. And I stumble a few times. But it's right there. It's just a great intro. It sets up the whole thing. It really, really does. And it's so William Burroughs in itself, isn't it? One minute long. It just sets up the agenda and the plot for the rest of the album. And within it, mm. they use that beautiful section of music, don't they? Richard Rogers, Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered. Yeah. Which is just that beautiful melody on the guitar. Yeah. Really great. And that was also used, apparently, as an intro of some of the North American tour as well. Track two, Diamond Dogs. All right, so this was a single, of course, as well. Starts off with a great line, this ain't rock and roll, this is genocide, followed by the crowd noise, which was supposedly lifted from a Faces gig. Yeah, yeah apparently you can hear Rod Stewart within it. So that's the thing. But, and again, it's a great record. And at the time, I didn't see it because I wasn't an aficionado and I'm still not of the Rolling Stones. We all know their oeuvre. Yeah. God, that's a big word for me. But if you listen to it now, it is very Stonesy, isn't it? Yeah. There's, there's no doubt about it. There is a story that Bowie came up with this riff just to piss off Mick Jagger a little bit. Really? Definitely. He didn't even hide the influence there. It's certainly Stonesy. Well, he'd already upset, <laughs> to paraphrase, Mick Jagger because uh, there's that great story, isn't it? Uh, the cover of Diamond Dogs by Guy Pilar. Mm. And he'd already already done some work for the Stones but it hadn't come out yet that's it's only rock and roll wasn't it it's only yeah. rock and roll and so Jagger showed it to Bowie and thought aye aye I like this and he showed him rock dreams I think as well I think that's the way the story goes in that order and so Bowie went off and got hold of Guy Pilar and got him to do the cover we'll discuss that in a short while maybe mm. the cover but Mick Jagger was really really upset about this and apparently he said never show Davy Bowie your new shoes is that right yeah because he'll just go out immediately and buy the exact same pair and wear them out before you do right be warned we next come to, this is probably, when I think about it, this is probably my favourite Bowie track, and it is a sweet, it is sweet thing candidate, sweet thing reprise. 
It's just uh, remarkable. And quite possibly Bowie's greatest vocal performance. It's certainly up there, isn't it? I was going to get to this. When Bowie died, I thought it was very noticeable that a lot of people were talking about how influential he was, what a great musician he was, songwriter. And very few people mentioned what an amazing singer he was, a great oh. vocalist. Yeah. They'd lost sight of this. And I think Diamond Dogs, one of the reasons this is one of my favourite Bowie albums, sometimes my favourite, is because this is where he really comes into his own. Talking about musicals, it's almost like he's reaching for the musical in a lot of places here. Well, it, it certainly is, you know, and it was so theatrical, the tour that went out across North America that we have discussed and probably will load more as well. Mm. Uh, but that was kind of a pivotal point from the look of it with Bowie on the scaffolding. Again, you got to see it on Cracked Action yeah. with him with the big coat on and leaning against the skyscraper and all that kind of yeah. stuff. It's one of those that just sets the hairs on the back of your oh, head. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember Jarvis Cocker played uh, Just Sweet Thing yeah. on Six Music one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon afternoon and I sent him a text I said Jarvis Jarv 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 <laughs> you cannot do this yeah. quite simply you are not allowed to play just sweet thing without candidate sweet thing reprise no it's not allowed mate I'll let you off this time and he played it again some months further down the line told that little story and played the full kit and caboodle and he acknowledged the fact that yeah it is wrong it's like chopping a limb off and just showing it to somebody it's yeah. just ridiculous I mean there is a bit particularly in sweet thing reprise where Bowie sings it's all I ever wanted and it always gives me goosebumps that it's incredible yeah it is so great and part of sweet thing reprise was also it featured in bootlegs previously it had been called Zion and Aladdin Vain and all that but it's just kind of uh, some of the little passages that that lead into various sections of that song but it had been dabbled with before apparently allegedly supposedly even possibly recorded in the Aladdin Sane and Pinup sessions ah. so you know and there are bootlegs that I've heard of that section of music okay Rebel Rebel which we mentioned before in the Vic Goddard thing originally written for an aborted Ziggy uh, musical in late 73 so it's all coming round to musicals all the time considered to be Bowie's last glam rock track and I do have a memory of this being used on a TV advert in the mid-70s, which is where I first heard Rebel Rebel. Right. It was either for jeans or perfume. I'm pretty sure it's perfume. There's very little record of it now if you go online. Sure. But it, it was there, definitely. Right, OK. And this, it's a really great American version of this, isn't it, with lots of backing yes, vocals and all yeah. that, which, again, I heard like years later and absolutely loved it. His first hit not to feature Mick Ronson since 1969. Ooh. So that's a, you know, a pivotal point, really. And uh, Bowie just said, it's a fabulous riff, just fabulous. When I stumbled on it, it was, oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. That wasn't an impersonation of no, Bowie, by the way. No. no, there is a great story, isn't there, that Bowie tells he was in a hotel one night in London, um, you know, in, in later years, and he could hear somebody upstairs playing a guitar really, really badly, and it was the Rebel Rebel riff over mm. and over, but as I say, stumbling over it, really awful. And he couldn't stand it, because Bowie had to be up very early the next morning for a TV appearance or whatever. So he went up there, knocked on the door, and told him to shut up. And it was John McEnroe, wasn't it? It was. And the irony being, I mean, he should have just really been playing the tennis racket, bit of air guitar, shouldn't exactly. he? But he was, he was making a, a right dog's dinner of it, wasn't yeah. he? Imagine that Bowie knocking on your door and then coming in and showing you how to play. <laughs> but it is one of the great riffs. It's not, it's not even that hard to play, but it's just a great, great rock and roll. And again, very, very stonesy. Yeah, very much. Yeah, wonderful okay. piece of work. OK, so when Jeff McCormack came on the first anniversary of Bowie's death on your radio show, he talked about the next song we're going to talk about, which is uh, Rock and Roll With Me, which is a lovely tune. It's a co-write with Bowie, wasn't it, this? 
Yeah, I mean, he said he was around Bowie's apartment and he just started, uh, well, Jeff just started playing on the piano and Bowie's ear pricked up and said, oh, yeah, what's that? Like that. And so they sat down and wrote a song together. And it is, it's a beautiful song. Jeff did tell me that it was credited to Bowie and Warren Peace, which was his non-depression. Yeah, sure. And as a result, he didn't get any royalties. That's what he said to me. Okay. Uh, and, he, and he said that it was kind of like a, a bit of smoke and mirrors, but as if Warren Peace was a Bowie character. Ah. You know, a little bit like Halloween Jack or Ziggy Stardust or whatever, and he didn't actually exist because, well, he didn't. It was a non-diplume, but it was a non-diplume not for David Bowie again, but for Jeff McCormack. Ah, And uh, and so he didn't get the monies that he deserved, which is very, very wrong. I mean, I'm I'm sure he got sorted out in other ways because Bowie was like, you know, they were just inseparable right to the end. And uh, we'll be talking about Jeff an awful lot in different episodes. But uh, yeah, definitely. It is a great soul song. And as Bowie was tended to do on all his albums, there'd always be a pointer to where the next album was going to go. And this is the one that points to young Americans, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty soulful, isn't it? And also, uh, well, track eight, We Are The Dead. I adore this one as well. Undervalued, I think, really sinister and brooding. And yeah, not much more I can say about that, really. 1984, which we've mentioned already. So this is Sonia Orwell. Couldn't stop Bowie using 1984, as you've said. Yeah, Mm. we've no copyright on that. Which is the centrepiece for the musical it never quite was. And it definitely borrows, naturally, from theme from Shaft by Isaac Hayes. This is good. It does, yeah. And clearly uses Bowie version of Winston Smith's Misfortunes yeah. in, in 1984. So again, it's a little bit like, no, 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 no. He's going to skirt as close as he can to 1984 without actually overstepping the line and upsetting <laughs> Sonia. You wouldn't want to do that, would no, you? No, you wouldn't. And we should also mention this is a great guitar masterpiece by Alan Parker, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, fantastic. Track 10, Big Brother. Oh, I, you know, I love this. This is another great vocal performance by Bowie. It's really terrific. Stays close to the novel, as you'd imagine by the title, Big Brother, which then seeks into chant of the ever-circling skeletal family, which is just a piece of madness. It's a brilliant end to the record, isn't it? But it just works so beautifully. It is, it is. And so we've covered all the tracks. Let's get back briefly to the album cover itself. So, Rock Dreams, and as we've mentioned before, Jagger, and uh, it's only rock and roll. Uh, so Bowie does it, and there are shots. Are they by Terry O'Neill, the initial yes. shots? So yeah. you've got Bowie lying down in that same position as the dog, and that was used as a template for uh, Guy Pilar to work from. Mm. And so famously, there was a big Ferrari, wasn't there, about the fact that the dog actually had some uh, testicles hanging Genitalia. Yes. Genitalia. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. You will be aware of this. But when the album was being... Um, don't look at me like that. <laughs> it's just it, I said genitalia. Don't worry. Yeah. It's all right. When they were actually just saying that this album is looming large and they were doing all the displays in the record shops, they sent out loads and loads of covers for Diamond and dogs before the record had been pressed and approved and all that kind of stuff and so they would make up these displays and get like 20 record covers staple them to the wall put a poster up Davy Bowie Diamond Dogs out such and such a date and then it transpires that all of those covers were actually with the genitalia, which mm. by the time the album was released had got taken off because it was objected to. Yeah, it had been airbrushed out. So, I mean, I am going back 10 years now and those covers were going for thousands, absolutely thousands. So if you've got one, it might have a couple of staple holes in it, but it will have a couple of something else on it as well. <laughs> absolutely worth having, well, for the artwork, clearly. I mean, when you think they were plastered over all shop fronts all over the States, they are knocking about. I'd love to know... If people have them, and yeah, well, save them. Yeah, I know somebody who's got one, and, uh, and it's a treasured possession and a, a pension as well. But also, uh, talking of advertising, particularly Diamond Dogs, I do remember going into a shop in Northenden, quite near where I still live, actually, and there was a little yellow sticker on the door, just remember it vividly, said, uh, order Davy Bowie's new single, Rebel Rebel. So I was like, whoa, went in, went up to the counter, there's this frosty old lady there, and I said, excuse me, could I order the Davy Bowie single, Rebel Rebel, please? And she went, 
What do you want to do that for? I said, well, there's a sticker on the window saying order it here. Yeah, so why do you want to order it? Because it says on there I need to order, you know, and so she wouldn't let me order it. She oh. just come and buy it. So I did, I went and bought it. But to this day, I still wish I'd just nicked that sticker off the window because she didn't need it. No, of course she A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. D is for Tony DeFries. Born 3rd of September 1943 in Rickmansworth in Hertfordshire, a sickly child by all accounts, he suffered from asthma, which led to spells in hospital. He then followed his brother into the legal profession and for 10 years he was a litigation clerk, which came in very handy for management. <laughs> yeah, it might also come in very handy if he wants to take me and you to court, Bob. Mm. So we need to tread very carefully here. He worked with showbiz lawyer Lawrence Myers, who worked for Mickey Most, uh, the uh, empresario, and loads of other people, obviously. And he also uh, helped out in a legal wrangle involving the Geordie band, the Animals, whatever that might have been. Okay, and he had dealings with Alan Klein, who later gained a notorious reputation for his work with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. It's suggested he learnt quite a bit from Alan Klein. Well, I mean, Alan Klein, notorious. We talked about the the managers. You know, there was Don Arden and Peter Grant, who played hardball, mm, didn't they, you know? Mm. And Don Arden being Sharon Arden's dad, who's Sharon Osbourne. Yeah. So there's a, a line running through here of a certain type of management. We've talked about it before. So you'd have the kind of old Tim Pan Alley guys, really kind of sweet and just knocking around in show business and not really ruthless and you've got the almost pretty gnarly characters who could see money to be made yeah. and we're getting in there I'm not suggesting Tony DeFeces either no by the way <laughs> well done Mark very nice Phew. indeed <laughs> as he sidestepped so by 1968 DeFries is working as a clerk at Godfrey Davis and Bat and he has over two years of experience which then sets him up by the early 70s Angie Bowie actually encouraged David Bowie to talk to Phillips Records general manager who was called 
Olaf Wiper, I kid you not. This is name. About being dissatisfied with Ken Pitt as manager and thinking, who else could we have instead? And so, yeah, Angie's steering leads them to Tony DeFries. So it's the 7th of May 1970, and this is quite brutal as well, but, uh, you know, I suppose uh, every now and then you just have to be. Tony DeFries calls a meeting with Ken Pitt, Bowie's manager at the time, and David Bowie. And Ken Pitt, he reluctantly agreed to rip up the contract with Bowie for just £2,000. Now, he did this, Hmm. but he, he never actually got paid. And I would wager, you know, he never got over it because Bowie lived in the flat with Ken Pitt for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, and he really looked after him. When I went to the V&A exhibition, the first time I went was for a private showing. Mm-hmm. And there were only about eight of us in there. It was a real honour. And wow. we just spent loads of time in there. There was nobody else in queues behind us. We just did what we wanted for a couple of hours. And in amongst the eight people, there was George Underwood was there and Hermione, mm-hmm. uh, but also Ken Pitt. Ah, well. He just looked like a very sweet old guy. And really not the gnarly hoodlum that we were no. talking about. Before. I mean, there is a story about years later that Ken Pitt did receive some compensation for his sort of dealings later on. It was only about £15,000 from what I've read anyway. So justice way, was done. Justice yeah. was done in the end, wasn't it? Yeah. Then, as if that wasn't enough, Tony DeFries called for an audit of Ken Pitt's accounts, right? Now, this is, again, very, very prescient, really. So they, they don't find out that Ken Pitt has been ripping off David Bowie. They find out that Ken Pitt has been undercharging him oh. and not charging him enough commission and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So a sweet man, a very, very sweet man. OK, so with Bowie on the books, DeFries starts about freeing the artists from his existing contract with Mercury. So he pays them £20,000 to free up two albums that Bowie'd recorded for them, Man Who Sold the World and Hunky Dory. Again, a brilliant move because, I mean, he, he was so confident that Bowie was going to crack yes. it. And he was so confident that nobody had bought those albums, Hunky Dory not being out. But, you know, at that point in time, mm. Man Who Sold the World, nobody bought it. As no. we know, we talk about collectible records. You know, the original uh, dress sleeve, that goes for about £1,500 oh. now, quite simply because nobody bought it at the time. That's right. And so that was a brilliant move. So when he went over to the next company, which would be RCA, mm. he already had a bit of back catalogue to plunder us. As well, yeah. So it's September 1971. Bowie signs to RCA, and it's all DeFries is doing by the look of it. And it's also reputedly because RCA was a home of Elvis Presley, yes, yeah, and um, yeah, David Bowie, who wouldn't be a massive Elvis Presley fan. And Tony DeFries looked at it and thought, right, yeah, they've got the biggest rock star in the world. Well, David Bowie is going to be the next biggest rock star in the world. It's a good home for him, definitely. So here's where DeFries really comes into his own. This is a masterstroke, really. So he has the idea. Look, we. Know I know you're not a star at the moment, but here it is. If you act like a star, people will treat you like one. Hence, this is where you get Bowie stays in the best hotels, gets limousines, gets bodyguards, still only on a very, very small wage, but to all intents and purposes from the outside, he is a star. Yeah, I mean, that's why people were looking at him and thinking, God, he must be so successful because he's got this entourage and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I mean, the spiders particularly Mm. really were like, you know, they were living the life of luxury, but there's a story. I think it's while they were staying in uh, California, but they were getting everything they wanted, you know, on on room service, they had accounts in the hotels, no bother, but they didn't have any cash at all so if they wanted a packet of cigarettes they had to go out and uh, apparently like offer somebody a bottle of champagne for a packet of cigs is that right yeah and going back to the Elvis thing as well I mean you know talking about Bowie being a fan there's a really great story of Bowie going to see Elvis Presley at Madison Square Garden Mm. turning up 
a little bit late and clomping down the aisle of Madison Square Garden whilst Elvis Presley's on stage in all of his finery, like, you know, some of his outlandish clobber and his platform boots and Elvis Presley giving him the evil eye as he's going down. And you would, wouldn't you? Of course you you've would. You've got, yeah. like, the greatest rock and roll star in the world at that point in time on stage and you've got this creature that most people wouldn't even recognise at that point in time. Everybody turning around and looking at him. And having the temerity to turn up late. So uh, Main Man, which is DeFries' management company, expands then. So not only do they have an office in London, they open one in New York with an apartment attached to it on the side. That's where the money was going, obviously, you know. Definitely. So Bowie's getting the star treatment and also the freedom. So at least he's given the artistic freedom. Let's do what you want. You deliver this and we'll be good to you. That's the idea. So Main Man starts to expand on the back of Bowie. You've got Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, you've got the Stooges, Lou Reed, and George Underwood. Yeah, George Underwood. At this point in time, he'd been in bands with George when he was much, much younger, and George being a childhood friend and everything. And he'd made some solo records as well, but he didn't have star quality, really. No, no offence, George. And he did the great artwork for Bowie and Bolan. Mm. Uh, so we know all that, but he even managed to get his mate on the roster as well. I so, know. I mean, yeah, so he, he enjoyed that, didn't he? We Definitely. know Bowie liked to kind of Svengali other people's careers, and sometimes more successful than others. But, you know, there was definitely the the star man and then there were the people underneath so you've got DeFries supposedly being less generous towards the band themselves there is a story that well Woody Woodmanty tells the story doesn't he that uh, DeFries has said look we'd rather pay the road crew more than we pay you that came after Woody Woodmanty was sat next to Mike Garson on a plane and Woody was looking in a magazine and there was a Porsche on there or you know mm. in the, within the magazine he's looking at it going oh and he said to Mike Garson I'd love one of them so Mike Garson said well at the end of the tour why don't you buy one he went you're joking are you how much money do you think I'm making. He went, I don't know. And he said, well, how much are you making? And it transpired that Mike Garson, the new boy, mm. was getting 10 times what the Spiders were getting, or oh. at least what Woody and Trevor were getting. And so he was uh, severely hacked off. And that's yeah. what brought about the conversation, going to DeFries and saying, what's happening here? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been so demoralising for the Spiders. I mean, it was really, essentially, that was the beginning of the end, wasn't it? Because they were assured at the start of the Aladdin Sane tour that, you'd, look, at the end of this, lads, you're fine. You can afford a house each. You'll be fine being clover. And it never happened. Yeah. I mean, and you have to imagine them being on the road with all this finery, getting used to the best treatment and just going wherever you wanted, doing whatever you wanted all around the world. And, yeah, when you get back, yeah, sorry, lads, yeah, you, that's it. Yeah. yeah, at the same time, you've got Bowie's contract, which has been, you know, various stories about this, but normally the management would take between 10 and 20%. That would be fair, wouldn't it? But yep. the story goes that DeFries took... 50%. Which, I mean, if that is right, it's got to be one of the worst uh, oh. deals to sign in the history of music, really. Just, yeah, just ridiculous. Yeah. So they split by 75, but I mean, the, the contract that Bowie had signed with DeFries went on. I mean, the repercussions went on for quite a number of years. They, they did, yeah. yeah. Lot, lots of wrangling. I mean, Bowie severed ties with him eventually, but it, it cost him a lot of money. It was a real yeah. blow, but he just felt he had to cut ties with him. And I think it has been mentioned, and it will be mentioned, the fact that Bowie didn't pay as much as he might have done to some of the musicians along yeah. the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that has been documented. So it's interesting, DeFries is, you know, the way he's viewed by Bowie Files now. He, some people see him as opportunistic, but. Other people say, well, you know, he's an enabler. He was able to get Bowie to where he wanted to be, at least. Yeah. Okay, and it's worth perhaps saying here what happened to Tony DeFries. So just a bit of research on this. So he's no longer in the music business. Apparently, he runs a company now out of Los Angeles, a research company, and he's currently working on a flexible electronic quantum battery powered entirely by light and human biophotons. He describes himself as a self-directed quantum physicist and material scientist. I bet he does. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. 
D is also for Derek and Clive. Oh dear. So Dudley Moore, Derek, Peter Cook, Clive. So in essence, it's a filthy, obscene, shocking, and pretty hilarious in parts extension of the Pete and Dud characters that they brought through in the 60s. Mm. It was very popular, and Davy Bowie, we know, was a huge fan. Absolutely. At this point, though, Peter Cook's alcoholism had become a real big problem, and he and Dud weren't getting on at all. Yeah, so they were in New York, weren't they? And they were doing the review show, Good Evening, which was based on the TV show Not Only But Also, which was huge. Mm. And, uh, well, this is where it gets a little bit odd. Peter Cook tried to diffuse the tension, albeit the tension he was causing, by the look of it, by hiring a recording studio in New York, where under no pressure or spotlight, they could drink and just riff off each other, just making it all up as he went along, but under the guise of just for fun. Yes, that's the thing. But the just for fun is a strange one, isn't it? This is mm. a double-edged sword, really. So you've got two guys just obviously adored each other back in the 60s, a different relationship in the 70s, and there's so much needle in there, isn't there? Some wonderful bits, great flights of fancy, brilliant comedy and the rest of it. At the same time, there's some quite kind of ugly stuff. It's almost bullying in parts, isn't it? I mean, obviously Peter Cook was quite caustic, and, and Dud wasn't, mm. so, and they were the characters, but those characters just seemed to grow within them, didn't they, you know? And so the tapes got out. It's a little bit like the Bob Dylan tapes, the basement tapes, isn't yeah. it? So, you know, they, they weren't meant to get out, but every musician had the basement yes. tapes. And yeah. so, and it was the same with the Trogs tapes as well. If you don't yes. know what the Trogs tapes are, then search them out. Hilarious. But they weren't meant for public consumption. And neither were these supposedly, but people ended up with them. And uh, Peter Cook, he now actually wasn't making as much money as Dudley Moore and thought, well, if every likes it we may as well stick it out now yeah. bear in mind it's it's filthy and and oh you know toe curling in parts yes. and so Dudley Moore being famous at this point in time he's a Hollywood star mm. he wasn't quite so keen no he wasn't but they put it out anyway so you've got Derek and Clive live two more albums released fairly quickly after Derek and Clive come again and Ad Nauseam which is the famous sleeve isn't it with a some vomit in a plastic bag. Yeah, pretty gruesome, yeah. The last two records particularly were just um, a growing ensemble of two people getting at each mm. other and more often than not just poor old Dud getting bruised and bruised and bruised. There's one particular sketch called Cancer mm. which, you know, regardless of what you've been through in your life or what you know uh, your family have been through or whatever, it's it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But Peter Cook knew full well that Dudley Moore's dad had just passed away from cancer yeah. and decided to riff off it and, and just to goad him and, and upset him, which, say uncomfortable listen, doesn't even cover it. No, no, it's all going to say it's such a difficult listen at times, isn't it? And you do wonder along the way whether people, obviously we're hearing this, people at the record company and the rest, did nobody kind of say, maybe we should just water this down, maybe kind of edit bits out? But it never seemed to happen. It seemed to just go straight from the studio to the record undiluted. Yeah, and so Bowie was a huge fan of Pete and Dud and Derek and Clive as well. And there's a great photo, isn't there, from mm. 1973 of the three of them. Didn't you say that Peter Cook had run a caption underneath the picture of the three of them? Yeah, it's at the Cambridge Theatre in Covent Garden, May 73. And so you've got from left to right, you've got Peter Cook, got Bowie and then Dudley Moore. And Peter Cook captioned it later as uh, Lord Gnome, Laughing Gnome and Garden Gnome. <laughs> mm. Again, uh, just having a pop at Dudley and, yeah. and his size and all that kind of stuff, you know. But the weird thing is, Brian Eno said this and... He, he doesn't even bear thinking about really, but he did say that we never ever spoke to each other in anything other than Derek and Clive voices. Now that can't be true. It can't be true, but it's a great image. And he has said that several times, Brian Eno, hasn't he? Yeah. He asserts that's the only form of communication in the studio. I'm sure they did it a lot, but I mean, yeah, I can't imagine them going to a bar and just being Derek and Clive. Maybe they did. Maybe they, he should know, shouldn't he? July 1971, Bowie asked DeFries to write to Dudley Moore, asking him to play piano on what was to become Hunky Dory. Wow. This is incredible. And you know, 
know, and uh, life on Mars, he could obviously at that point in time hearing it mm. in his mind. This big piece with a great pianist on it and he wanted Dudley Moore but Dudley Moore never got back to him did what he? What a great projected scenario that was instead of Rick Waitman could have been Dudley Moore yeah, I'd like oh. to see Dudley Moore in a cape with long blonde hair Me too mm. sure so uh, Moore and Peter Cook were guests on Ziggy's Last Stand this is the Hammersmith Odeon show in July 1973 so they're at the Café Royal Bowie had this huge big party afterwards anybody who was anybody was there the Jaggers Ringo Paul and Linda McCartney Keith Moon Lou Reed Jeff Beck Barbara Streisand Spike Milligan Spike Milligan, so you, I would pay to see Spike Milligan, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore in the same room anyway, amazing, yeah. And, uh, and you know what, I mean, I'll just throw this in, but the last time that I met David, uh, we did an interview in a hotel in London, and it was just around about a week before he actually uh, performed for the very last time, mm. and uh, that was the last interview that he did for 10 years, I think. I think he might have done one more interview after that with Courtney Pine, is what I'm led to believe, so it very nearly was the last interview for radio that David ever did. But before we even started the interview luckily the engineer who came with us to record it had set it off and I'd not had a chance to set it up right I'm here in a you know a hotel room with David Bowie got some gigs coming up this that and the other he just went off and he just said there was a knock on the door and so immediately he invites me in so I'm going oh yeah who was it well it's John and Paul isn't it is it yeah it is yeah and it goes on like this and he's already set up yeah. and it is very Pete and Dud if you, if you can listen to it you will mm. hear it and he goes off riffing with me just going alright oh, you what you're joking all that kind of stuff and he tells a story which I'm presuming it might be partly based in truth I'm not sure you never knew David Bowie yeah. but that there was a knock on the door and it was John Lennon and Paul McCartney and they came in and they discussed forming a super group which Bowie said they wanted to call David Bowie and the Beatles <laughs> so maybe <laughs> make of that what you will and uh, and he said, we worked it all out. He said, it was really great. It was going well. We had a great night together. And then what do you think happened the next day? And I said, what happened? Nothing. Typical Scouse. <laughs> it is a great interview because it just shows the whole mischievous side of Bowie because there's no point during that interview, as far as I can remember, where he just stays on track. He doesn't want to talk about anything normal. He's just off. He's not interested. He go, he starts talking about them finding seahorses in the Thames for the first time in mm. 20 years and all this. And when I try and get him back talking about the album and the toy, not having it, he just wants to get into this comedic persona and just fly with it. And it, it's a great listen. But uh, you, you could hear aspects of Pete and Dud in there, most certainly. David Live, Bob Dylan, Dennis Davis, Donna Gillespie, Dick Cavett, Decker, Jeff Dexter, D-Ram. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.